And I'm just blown away. I'm just thinking, there's no way on earth. How in the how did this guy become Catholic? So as I explained last week, I raced home. I sat down in this rocking chair in the corner of my living room. And like the, the image that comes to mind, Matt, is like Gideon hiding out in the wine press. I put on headphones so that I could listen to Scott's conversion story without Tina knowing what I was doing. Because I was thinking, you know, this is like contraband. This is like, you know, like, like I brought, brought LSD into the house or something. And you I was secretly s- listening to s- communist propaganda tapes or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or pornographic magazines or something. Well, hello and welcome to another penitential episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. And uh, if you don't know much about the Coming Home Network, we'd love you to come visit us at chnetwork.org. We have all kinds of stories of people who from various backgrounds, like Ken and myself, have ended up in the Catholic Church. Uh, Plus, we have lots of resources and an online community for people who are looking to meet with other people who are in that process or farther along with that process. So come check out our online community, community community.chnetwork.org. Ken, we are deep into your story, and I'm in deep. Um, We started off with just how you found the Lord, and then you became a pastor, Mm -hmm. and now you're in a situation where your world has gotten shook a little bit. So let's pick up where we left off. Okay, well, let me, be, since you said this is going to be a penitential episode, let me begin by um, apologizing a little bit. Matt, you told your whole story in five episodes. I've told, I've done three episodes now, and so far, I have to consider this all background information. Um, today, I'm really going to hit on the first question that we ask at our retreats, that is, what is it that opened your mind um, that opened your heart to the possibility that the Catholic Church could have something to say. That's what I'm well, going to complete with this, this, this uh, week and then move forward. Yeah, the the issue, Ken, is that you have to do about one episode roughly for every decade of your life. Um, and since I'm in my you 40s, saying it's just because I I'm older. Okay. So because you're okay. older, this well, could take eight I am a penitent. Episode. I'm not sure. I am a penitent. As you can see, we're recording this on Ash Wednesday, and I've got the ashes on my forehead. Um dust thou art and to dust thou shalt return and so my goal here is to complete at least one more episode of on the journey with matt and ken before i return to the dust that's what i'm sounds praying good for to me sounds good to me since you're you know when i get the ashes old. by the way i wiped mine off because i knew this was going to be airing a lot later but let me just tell you that when the monsignor went today to ash me he had a just a mm-hmm. broad palette with which to work so uh got me good <laughs> Okay, well, you know, uh, you continually imply that I'm an old man, and, and my grandchildren do the same thing. I asked them the other day, how old do you think I am? And one of them was guessing 95, another one guessed 80. Another one said 16, though, so <laughs> who knows? Anyway, that's where we're at, okay? And so let me kind of just recap quickly uh, the turning point last week. Um, when I lead the retreats, I often, in fact, I almost always start by looking at John chapter 9, I got this from Marcus Grodi at the very first Coming Home Network retreat I attended, where he used John 9 to introduce the retreat. And the passage really strikes me. Uh, That's the passage, well-known passage, where the man who is born blind 
and who goes out to beg every day, day, day of his life. I mean, that's what he's done his entire life is go out and sit there blind, begging, and suddenly there's someone uh, asking him, what would you like me to do for you? <laughs> and um, Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. He says, I want my sight. Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back seeing. And the thought being that the, the, the things that happen in our lives, they often come just out of the blue. This guy has spent his entire life begging, being blind, assuming he would always be blind. And he gets up that morning having no conception that his entire world is going to change. And yet it does. And in a similar way, what opened my heart to the Catholic faith was something completely out of the blue, meaning that I wasn't thinking about Catholicism. I wasn't reading about it. I wasn't studying. I wasn't contemplating. I wasn't anything. It was completely out of the blue. And that is, I found out out of the blue, it seemed totally random. I found out that an old friend had become Catholic. And as I said last week, that friend was Scott Hahn. Now, Scott was someone that I had known like a dozen years before. Yeah, he's someone I hadn't talked to him in 10 years. I didn't know what was happening in his life. And suddenly a gentleman in my church, I'd been a pastor now about eight years at the time. Suddenly a gentleman in my church just basically hands me a set of tapes with the title, Answering Common Objections Against the Catholic Faith by Scott Hahn. And I'm just blown away. I'm just thinking, there's no way on earth. How, in the, how did this guy become Catholic? So as I explained last week, I raced home. I sat down in this rocking chair in the corner of my living room. And like the image that comes to mind, Matt, is like Gideon hiding out in the wine press. I put on headphones so that I could listen to Scott's conversion story without Tina knowing what I was doing. Because I was thinking, you know, this is like contraband. This is like, you know, like, like I brought, brought LSD into the house or something. And I yeah, was secretly listening to communist propaganda tapes or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or pornographic magazines or something. So anyway, I listened to Scott tell his story. And at the time, my mind was just swimming with thoughts. But l later, I feel looking back as though, or I could see that the Lord had been preparing me. I, I feel like I had been prepared for many years for what I was going to hear that very night. And, and, and I want to break it down a little bit. I, I kind of breezed through this last time, but I want to break it down a little bit more um, and give you some illustrations. For example, I listened to Scott in his conversion story talk about his love for Martin Luther and Calvin and the Protestant Reformation and how he had been completely committed to the Reformation idea that salvation is by faith alone. And then he went on to tell how he had come over time to abandon this view and to embrace the Catholic teaching that salvation, that our salvation is by the grace of God alone, but it is not by faith alone. It's rather through a process that includes faith, includes the struggle to put that faith into practice, obedience, persevered in by God's grace with God's forgiveness all the way along till the end of our life. And I, I'm listening to this, Matt, and my mind was racing because, as I mentioned, I guess, last week or two weeks ago, ha hadn't I come to a similar view all the way back in the seminary and after that? The Reformation Doctrine, you remember, teaches that at the moment we look to Christ in faith, his righteousness is legally credited to our account, and we are saved. I mean, past tense, we are justified. It's a done deal. 
And that's why our obedience can have nothing to do with our salvation. Obedience is something that comes after. Obedience is important. We need to grow and strive after holiness. But we're already saved. We're, we're justified, okay? And then I, I told you, and um, if anybody wants to see this in great detail, you and oh, I yeah, we got episode upon episode upon episode. And if you want to look it up, yeah, it's called A Damning System of Works Righteousness. And there are tons of episodes because there's a lot of layers to this question. Yeah, it begins with episode 17 of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, if someone wants to look it up on YouTube or whatever. But anyway, I told the story then about how my professor, one of my New Testament professors, all the way back in, at Fuller Theological Seminary, had walked into the room one day and basically said, you know, Luther and Calvin, this idea that we are justified by faith alone, it just doesn't fit the pattern of what we see throughout the entire Bible. He said, the entire Bible is filled with nothing but stories about people and their relationships with God. And the pattern we see is always that of faith leading to obedience, resulting in God's blessing. You know, Noah had to trust God that a flood was coming and he had to build the boat in order to be saved. It's not like he trusts God and he's saved and then he builds a boat out of gratitude or for some other reason, you know what I mean? It, he had to trust and obey. Abraham had to trust God and leave Ur of the Chaldees and follow to the land of promise in order to inherit it. Moses and the Israelites, they had to trust God. They had to sacrifice the Passover lamb. They had to leave Egypt, had to cross the Red Sea. They had to follow the pillar of fire by night, cloud by, you know, they had to trust and obey and follow by the grace of God all the way to the promised land. So I had been thinking these kinds of thoughts all the way back in seminary, and I'd been teaching this. Over the years, I had come to think of justification as including the total process by which we are forgiven our sins and made fit for eternal life in God's presence. But I didn't know that this was essentially or fundamentally a Catholic way of looking at salvation because I didn't know Catholic theology. And so I'm listening to Scott here, Matt, and I'm suddenly, the thought's sort of hitting me. Have I been, in, in some sense, have I been teaching Catholic theology for years as a pastor? I listened to Scott talk about the beauty of Catholic liturgy as well and how he'd come to see that Catholic worship focused on the, the Eucharist was historic Christian worship. And again, I mean, if you think back on the story I've told so far, my mind, just listening to Scott telling this at the time, my mind's kind of racing back to St. Andrew's Abbey uh, in the high desert here in Southern California because throughout the entire time I had been a pastor. So th this began right after seminary. And so the entire eight years or so at this point that I had been a, a, an associate pastor for three and a half years in Riverside and become a senior pastor, all those years, I had continued to go out to St. Andrew's Abbey for spiritual retreats. I Now, when you were going to St. Andrew's, because I was yeah. curious about this. I meant to ask this when you first brought it up. Mm -hmm. Were you going to Mass out there? Uh, because, you know, I know plenty of Protestants who used to go out to the Abbey of Gethsemane, right? But they would go to, like, mm -hmm. morning prayer and night prayer, but they wouldn't go to Mass. Like, were you going to Mass at all? No, that's a good question. Yeah, I, I attended the entire daily cycle. You know, and I, I, I just didn't receive. In fact, at the time, I probably didn't even get up and go forward for a blessing. I probably just sort of sat and watched. Um, yeah. But, you know, the thing is, again, I wasn't thinking 
what is this thing, Catholicism? Could it be true? Does it have a case? Is there a case that could be made for it? I, I wasn't thinking any of that. I was going out to St. Andrew's Abbey because I just loved being there. You know, I, I felt that there was a sense of awe and a sense of reverence there that went beyond what I was used to, you know, in, in, in your typical evangelical world, you know. You know, where the pastor's standing up on a stage, he's got a couple of rocks and a, and a, and a plant, you know, a palm tree behind him, you know, and you know what I mean, a rock band plays. And th- th- there was something of reverence there. There was something of awe there that really moved me. And I, I felt like it, it spoke to my spirit, the worship, chanting the Psalms. It spoke to my spirit. It spoke to my mind, definitely. But, but it was different because it spoke to my spirit and my mind through the avenue of everything I had been created to be, through the avenue of my eyes, what I saw, you know, the, the beauty of stained glass, the be- just the beauty. It spoke to me through my ears, you know, what I was hearing, through, even through my nose, you know, smelling the incense. And I, I love the smell of incense to this day. Through my knees, kneeling, standing, up and down. It just, it, it, it's, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of a total immersive experience. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, because... I'm wondering about how you thought about these differences before you heard Scott sort of lay it out like he did on that tape. Because, you know, I mentioned, I think, in my story that I used to think until I got to, like, you know, started working at Family Christian Store and going to yeah. Bible college, that all these differences between denominations were just differences in, in personal taste as to, you know, what people preferred to hear and engage in. Wow. Uh, I mean, were you thinking when you were at the, the Abbey, you're like, well, I prefer this style over another style, or this mm-hmm. is an interesting style compared to my style. Or you, were you thinking that there's something like qualitatively, like objectively different here? Um, yeah, I'm just curious about yeah. like, I mean, yeah. have you gone it's back and thought? Because like, I'm sure in the ahead. moment you weren't thinking to yourself like, well, one day when I have to reckon with the full force of Catholicism, I'll be filing this away yeah. for then. Yeah, I'm sure it's all <laughs> no. this is in retrospect. No, in, in fact, it's more like one aspect of your story that you told where as you were becoming uh, aware of these things, you were thinking, wow, I'd like to incorporate this into my like right, maybe I'll create yeah. a new denomination. You know, I mean, I wasn't thinking that. I never thought I'll create a new denomination. But yeah, th- that's what it was. I just thought, this is beautiful. This is good. Um, I wonder how I could incorporate some of this. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't cross that line. I, I guess you could say I'm kind of a dumbbell in that way that I didn't cross that line. Maybe it's because my assumption was just so deeply ingrained that Catholicism was nuts. You know, it was just sort of like, well, I can borrow some things here. You know, there's some things that are nice and beautiful, but, but, but the whole thing is nuts. Anyway, though, th- throughout the years, Matt, I had become more and more interested in spirituality, I guess you could say, or, or, or worship ambiance, all these kinds of things, the spiritual disciplines even, you know, and I began by reading that book by Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline, which was written for an evangelical audience. I had gone on to read another really good book, The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard, a professor of philosophy at USC. Um, But I'd gone on from that, and I mean, as a Baptist pastor, to read The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. I had read... um, the practice of the presence of God by Brother yeah, Lawrence. Yeah, Brother Lawrence. I I would never. I I I heard that preached on right as a yeah. Nazarene yeah. kid. I had no idea we're talking about like a a Catholic monk here. I thought it was like yeah, I know, you know I, Brother Steve who's going to get up and you yeah. know sing a special for us. Like you know Brother Lawrence. You know he was, he was really uh, into seeing God everywhere. Yeah, and I remember being excited about his story and 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 being being really moved by it. You know this monk who 
who said to himself, you know, I, you know, I'm just not smart enough to follow all these complex patterns of prayer. And so I think I'll just enter God's presence and never leave it, you know, <laughs> and he just made it the practice of living in the presence of God. But um, I'd also read some of the ascent to Mount Carmel by St. John of the Cross. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I was growing through this time to love these writers, to love these saints, um, and to love much that was deeply Catholic in terms of spirituality. And I guess I would just sort of skip over the stuff they said about the Eucharist and Mary. You know, when they said that stuff, I just sort of blotted out and then move along. And in fact, though, uh, to, to add one more little touch to this, I can see that my own um, spirituality as, a, as an evangelical was flavored by these things more and more. Um, not to where I became some kind of a Protestant monk or anything like that, but, but, but this was a part of it. And it goes all the way back to what I told last week about John Michael Talbot's music, that little Baptist church that we were in that was kind of really Catholic, watching the uh, the hippie version of of um, St. Francis of Assisi's life, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, and then St. Andrew's Abbey. So all of these things are kind of building in me, but I had never contemplated. I mean, I'm, I'm serious about this. I had never once asked the question, could this be a sign that the Catholic Church has something to say? And here I am listening to Scott now, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, whoa, you know, like maybe, just barely maybe, but maybe. And then I want to touch on one more issue before I pull this all together. Maybe the biggest issue is I remember listening to that conversion story and hearing Scott talk about how one of his students, he was teaching a course at a seminary, and one of his students had raised his hand and said, Professor Hahn, where exactly does the Bible teach that the Bible is to function as our sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Sola Scriptura. Where does the Bible actually teach Sola Scriptura and the right of private judgment in, the, in, in, in Christian teaching? And how Scott had immediately thought, well, obvi- <laughs> that's obvious. And, and yet he became perplexed because as he started thinking about it, you know, you're about ready to say it, right? Right, yeah. As he started thinking All about Scripture it. is God-breathed, right? Yeah, he couldn't figure out where it actually taught that the more he thought about it. He thought, well, there's this passage, but it doesn't really include all that. And there's this other passage. So I'm, I'm listening to Scott say this, tell this story, and then to relate how he'd come to see, as a Catholic, that along with the inspired scriptures, that God had given his people um, another gift, an authoritative church, a, a church that would be led by the Spirit through scripture, through its teach, through its tradition, through the magisterium, led by the Spirit to preserve the apostolic faith, to develop it, to hand it down to his people. And this hit me between the eyes, and I, I, I need to explain in more, more than 15 words on this. This really hit me between the eyes, this, this thought, Matt, because I had always assumed the truth of, as a Christian in my Christian life, of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment that follows from that. I had been converted to Jesus laying on my bed reading the New Testament alone. The Bible study that Tina and I attended, the churches we attended, I mean, sola scriptura was the presupposition upon which the whole thing was based. I mean, there was never even a question it, the subject never even came up like, okay, we're basing this on sola scriptura, so we need to justify that. It's like, 
you sit down, you open your Bible, you study your Bible, and you come to a decision as to what it's teaching. In the very first church that I was in and group that I was in, I explained uh, last week, I was a radical dispensationalist. That's what I was invited into. In fact, our group, Matt, was so radical that the only books in the New Testament that I thought, for a short time, that I thought actually applied to the church were um, Ephesians and Colossians. Everything else well, was Jewish. That ain't much. And it was all written for the Jews. <laughs> it was all written for the Jews of the New Covenant. It didn't have anything to do with the church. Well, what about Romans, man? Well, Romans is like the ultimate well, Lutheran book, right? The ultimate Calvinist too, book. Yeah, but it was too Jewish. And, you know, and then I had left the radical dispensationalism to become a more standard dispensationalist, Acts chapter 2, you know, the church begins. You know, your garden variety dispensationalist, it, you know. Yeah, garden, yeah. And then during Bible college, I'd rejected dispensationalism entirely, and I'd become a Baptist and a Calvinistic Baptist, more of a straight Reformation stripe. For a while, a story that I'll tell later, probably next week or so, uh, for a while I toyed with the idea of becoming an Orthodox Presbyterian. So... I had been I had been living in the world of sola scriptura and the right of private interpretation. This was the air that I breathed and every Christian I knew. And so I never even thought about it. And then as a pastor, a great deal of my time was spent every week studying the scripture, looking into Hebrew of the Old Testament, looking into the Greek of the New Testament, mapping it out. Doing what you version. thought was exegesis, but was probably eisegesis. Right. Yeah, probably probably a lot did, did of that you, because we talk about all these verses I never saw. I mean, had you ever seen I mean, I'm sure you read it, but did you like read right over? Did you have a place in your brain for Second Peter one twenty? Um, where it says, Know this first of all, that there is no prophecy of scripture that is a matter of personal interpretation. For no prophecy ever came through human will, but rather human beings moved by the Holy Spirit spoke under the influence of God. So so don't interpret this privately. Mm-hmm. This is Peter, you know, who we now know as the first pope, telling yeah. people that private interpretation. Did you ever, did you like, did you have a spin on that or did you just not see it or? I I have to confess. Now, now of course, I'm, th- I'm, I'm thinking back, you know, vast, vast, eras of time right decades now and so 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 it's hard it's hard for me to remember what i thought but i think it's easiest just to say it like this my assumption of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment was so deeply embedded that nothing i ever read in scripture ever made me think about it even uh and so i'm you know i might have said oh he's saying that you know um yeah he's saying that i don't know (laughs) i don't know what i would have said i have the same problem by the way when i go back and think you know, there's there's the verses I never saw, right? That Marcus has, uh-huh. you know, done a whole series yeah. on um, on deep in scripture and, and that yeah. sort of thing. And and there's some of these that I never saw, but there's some of those that I probably saw and just moved right past. Or there's some of them that yeah. I had such an ingrained worldview that like I just assumed it meant something else. Like I would have thought maybe I don't know. Like did I think like yeah that just means that you should probably ask your pastor what it means instead of like just going off on yourself or like i don't i don't know that's why i'm like not asking to trap you like right i'm just asking because i'm genuinely curious because i have all these doubts about myself looking back about what i must have thought of these things yeah uh, you know it could mean that i i think another aspect of this is that the bible is so big that it's relatively easy even as a pastor just to focus on the stuff you like and then you feel like you can really energize and teach and kind of skip over what you don't 
I mean, it's like John chapter 6 again, too. I'm sure that what I would have focused on is verse 35, where Jesus says, the one who believes in me will never hunger, and the one who comes to me will never thirst. Okay, the one who believes in me and comes to me will never hunger and never thirst. And I would have said, aha, that's what he means by eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's telling us right here, all he means is that we need to come to Jesus and believe in him. And I would have skipped over all the problems with that that arise in that passage. Um, yeah, I think with something but, like that, yeah. my my default position would have been like, if this was meant to be mm-hmm. a, b- a bigger deal, obviously we'd be talking about it more. I don't know. Well, yeah, and, and, but and here's my the thing college. That I'm I couldn't. At. I couldn't just go go with that excuse anymore. As a teenager, I think that was kind of my uh-huh. default position. Yeah. yeah. What what I think I'm getting at here is is just that my own theological journey going from radical dispensationalist to regular dispensationalist to Baptist, maybe Orthodox Presbyterian, loving the Puritans, you know, uh, and then studying every week to preach. I would sit in my office. I would, like I said, work through the Greek or the Hebrew, whatever it was. I would pull down off my shelf scholarly commentaries that were written by Lutheran scholars or Presbyterian scholars, Baptist scholars, whatever, scholars of different, a variety of Protestant denominations. I would synthesize all their arguments, I would come to my conclusion and I would stand up in the pulpit and I would teach it. And because I studied more than anybody in the church, you know, most people would accept it. You know, not everybody, but most people would accept it. And yet, I I know that during all those years, there's a sense in which I was becoming less and less certain of my positions. And I... Maybe it's just, just just realizing that there are brilliant scholars in all these different denominations who di- disagreed with me and reading their books. Um, maybe it was confronting the, the hard work of exegesis and realizing, hey, it's really hard sometimes to decide what a passage or a paragraph or a book is saying, what, it's, what the argument really is. I don't know, but, uh, but this all came together to give me the sense sometimes that the more I studied, the less sure I was. You know, is salvation something that can be lost, yes or no? As a Calvinist, obviously you can't lose your salvation. But then I remember reading the works of John Wesley and thinking, guy, he's making powerful scriptural arguments on the other side. How is church, I mean, how is Christ's church to be governed? Um, our church was congregational rule. Others have sort of an autocratic rule by the pastor. Others have a board of elders. Others have bishops. We didn't even, we didn't, ha- we didn't have bishops at all in my denomination. So, you know, there are these questions, and there are all sorts of other questions that divide Baptists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, all the Protestant denominations, the Eucharist, baptism, so many other. And then you've got your independent preachers. You've got these guys who I refer to them now as sort of theological beat poets. <laughs> you know, they just sort of grab a Bible, and they just sort of come up with their own theology, and uh, some, you know, a church of 15,000 people springs up around them, and they're teaching things that Christianity has never taught. They're teaching the annihilation of the soul. You know, um, they're teaching this, they're teaching that. Theological beat poets, just sort of, hey, this is what sounds good. And they have these huge churches. And then you've got your dogmatic preachers, big pastors, who preach with absolute certainty that everything they're saying is right. And people love that, and they flock around them. The problem is they all disagree with each other, and they all insist that the Bible's clear, and that all you have to do is read it, right, <laughs> to, to know what it's saying. So 
these are all things that had happened in my life, I'm saying. These are all things that I had thought about, but it, to me, there was no alternative to sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. So I, so I never thought consciously, maybe sola scriptura isn't true. You know, or maybe the maybe that's not how Christ set up his church. I never consciously thought about it. This is all happening on what I guess you'd call a subliminal level. But but then here I am listening to Scott, and, and Scott is coming to the conclusion. Yeah, Jesus did not set up the church to function on the basis of sola scriptura and the right of every person to interpret for himself. Look at all the fracturing and fragmentation that has occurred within Protestantism since, in, in just the 500 years since the Reformation. Isn't it obvious? No, Jesus gave his people a church, and he leads that church by his Holy Spirit so that the people of God can be one church, they can be united in the faith, and they can devote their lives to learning how to put into practice Christian teaching rather than scrambling around trying to figure out what it is. And so I'm listening to all this and I'm thinking back to all these things and I take off the headphones and my mind is like kind of going crazy. On the one hand, as, I, as I've said to you before, I had this thought on the one hand, you know, I think, I think I can analyze these arguments and I can answer them. I think I have a Protestant argument for everything that Scott has said here. And then there was this other part of me, Matt, that was kind of saying, wow, how come I don't know the case for the Catholic faith? And how come Scott has raised a bunch of issues that at that point in my life, I was about 38 years old, um, I had never studied or never thought about. So there was this curiosity and also the fact that the things he was saying were ringing the, these bells in me about what I had learned about justification and seminary, about my experience at the monastery all those years and my reading of Catholic spiritual literature, about my struggle with them, knowing or f feeling uh, feeling uh, really secure like some pastors did, you know? It's like, I kind of felt like, you know, these guys are really sure and everybody loves that, you know, but the truth is I see really good arguments on both sides of this question or on that both sides of that question and not feeling the same way. So anyway, here's what I did. I um, ran down to my church the next day and I went into my office and I bolted the door and I hunted Scott down and I, I got Scott on the phone. I found him. You know, it, it said on the package of tapes where he was teaching or something and I, I hunted him down. And Scott answered the phone <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Scott, this is Ken, your old buddy from Fuller Seminary. And Scott's like, hey, Ken, how you been? You know, that kind of thing. And I was like, don't, don't ask me how I've been. I want to know how you've been. I mean, what I found these tapes, you know, what is going on? And so that's how it started. Scott and I began to have some conversations. Scott and I began to debate. I began to debate him on this issue or that. But pretty soon, Matt, I started thinking to myself, I have a lot to learn. I know my worldview inside and out, but I don't know the Catholic worldview. And so knowing that Scott was a busy person and that I was busy too, uh, the time came where I said to Scott, hey, Scott, j just send me like the titles to maybe 20 books that you think would be the most important to educate me in what you believe. And, and, and I'll take it from there. Um, at the same time though, behind my back, he called St. Joseph Communications 
and which uh, is in your told, backyard, right? Yeah, Co- Covina was only about thirty minutes from where I lived at the time, maybe forty-five minutes. He calls St. Joseph Communications, and he says, evidently, you know, I've got this Baptist pastor hanging on the hook. Send him everything, the whole nine yards, because without asking or without knowing, this box just showed up at my church one day, and it was a big box, and it was stamped all over the outside. Wait, was it wrapped in brown paper so that nobody could tell where it was from or like... You know, no, and I wish that Terry Barber had you thought about that. You go to the door in sunglasses no. and go pick it up, you know? No, it was stamped all over the outside, St. Joseph Communications, okay? And so, I mean, I, I mean, I still remember the feeling. I'm at, I'm, I'm, I'm driving up to my Baptist church. This box is sitting in front of the door. I'm thanking God that I'm the first person there that day. And I grab the box and I drag it inside my office and I bolt the door. And I'm thinking already, how am I going to get rid of the, this box? You know, like, how, am I going to burn it or tear it apart? Or I didn't have a shredder, you know, that could handle a huge cardboard box. Um, but but I, I I still remember these things. It's such a, a, a it's such a story in my life, you know, and, and and such a turning point because I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, okay, I guess I'm going to study Catholicism. And I tear open the box and Scott had a, St. Joseph to send me everything he had done. So there was Romanism in Romans by Scott Hall. You know, there was this and that. There were all these sets of tapes. And um, that began a process of about three and a half years now, um, during which I basically rethought from the ground floor up my entire worldview as a Christian, Um, beginning by listening to all those tapes, by beginning to listen to every tape debate I could find, by buying the books that had been recommended and beginning What year to was this, those. by the way? Um, I'd have to go back and find the letter that uh, that uh, this fellow from Catholic Answers, Patrick Madrid, I think at the time, had written. But I, I'm guessing that it's either late 1992 or the okay. spring or so of 1993. So this would have been more of an era when these guys would have been doing like you know, recorded debates and like tapes of them sitting down. Oh, yeah. with, I mean, they, they're still, still Catholic Answers does that sort of thing from time to time, but this is like, they would pack out like some yeah. church some night and just like have Patrick Madrid over here or Steve Ray over there or, you know, and a Baptist pastor and just, they'd record it, which is crazy to me. Like thinking back, like uh, mm-hmm. only one group would probably want to be selling that side of the conversation. It's whoever they thought would win. But like Catholic Answers is like selling all of them. Like they're really pretty yeah. confident about yeah. their positions if they're the ones selling the tapes, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that I, I I think Scott's conversion story was recorded in 1990 or 91 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even that old. Um, yeah, this is pretty early. I was about I was 38 years old at the time. I would guess I'd been a pastor now for eight years um, when this happened. But I guess let me just close. Then uh, th- th- this is a good place for me to break off. Then. Um, you know, by, and next week, what I'll focus on is what convinced me that I had to become Catholic. That is what happened during those three and a half years or four years of rethinking my worldview from the bottom up. Um, but I, but I think that, um, this was just a, I'm thinking back to John chapter nine again. And I, and I'm, I thank God. And you know, I look back and I thank God because I didn't go looking for any of this, you know, it was just literally just dropped in out of the blue. And suddenly I'm in my office 
suddenly I'm freaking out. I'm trying to hide this cardboard box. I'm like, <laughs> I'm eating it, you know, like like people do in prison. I'm tearing it up, tearing it apart. Flushing it down the toilet it. one strip at a time. Calling the plumber like, hey, I don't understand what the problem is with this toilet. I don't understand what happened he looks, here. He, he looks down and there's a giant cardboard box just stuffed down in there. But but um, I, I remember so vividly tearing open that box and thinking, okay, I got to hide all this stuff. What am I doing? This is crazy. And, all, and also thinking at the same time, these Catholics can't be right. There's no way. This can't be right. And yet, I'm intrigued. It, it, it can't be right, but I'm really curious and beginning to learn. So there you go. There it is. I'm still just like, I can't shake the image of you trying to stuff the, the cardboard box and say <laughs> Joseph communication down the toilet. We end up looking like a it. high school boy's <laughs> bathroom where like there's one stall that the door is ripped off of and the other one is just unusable. Just unusable. And there's well, the cardboard you, box, box was like about, jammed into the toilet. This box was about three feet tall. I mean, it was a big box. I probably, I feel like so, you know, the way you describe it, I feel like it was taller than that. Um, and then it was like, like a it refrigerator was. box full of, you know, Scott Hahn you know, tapes and Patrick Madrid debates. You know, yeah, and you just like, you just get the, you know, of course I never thought the roller in the I door. I never thought at the time, I never thought at the time that I'd be telling this story, you know, 20, 25 years later, or, or I would have pulled out, you know, a tape measure and measured the box for you. <laughs> measured the box just to make sure. So it was five cubits wide and... Uh, <laughs> it was made of acacia wood and ob- overlaid in pure gold. And the contents no, in, a cardboard box. Uh, were worth three years wages. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of the best biblical way to describe that, you know. Um, yeah. You had to sign for it. You're just going on and on. You're seven just on shekels, and on. but that was that was the Canadian <laughs> price on those. But Cause yeah, cause Ken, I mean, this anything. is good stuff. Um, well, that's what happened. I can't wait to see like what the turning point was because you know this is the this is the issue that you know so many of the people that we deal with, and of course you're always in in communication with with people who are pastors from all kinds of traditions who are mm-hmm. like working through this stuff now. Like they've had that moment where they were like on their headphones or they saw something that they can't unsee in relation to like the debate over Sola Scriptura or something like that. And, you know, often when you say something like three years, I mean, often for a lot of people in this position, men and women in ministry, it can be longer than that. Right. Um, So I want to know what the turning point, like what the the thing was is like, okay, I have to act on this. So, um, yeah, but, but as we're saying that, I'll tell you um, that. And we're going to do that next week, but I do want to put it out there because I know there are people watching who are like, in that situation right now um, at various stages. Maybe they're at the very beginning of it, right? Uh, maybe they accidentally called their Catholic friend mm-hmm. and they shipped them one of these ginormous boxes that they had to hide and flush down the toilet. Or maybe there's somebody who's been, you're somebody who's been in this situation for a couple of years now and are trying to think that the, the evidence just keeps piling up. Um, we're here to help you and uh, we're sympathetic people and hopefully very kind because we've been through some pretty weird stuff ourselves as part of this journey. If that's you, please do contact us. Uh, chnetwork.org is the main website where you can find more stories, uh, more episodes of On the Journey, and and a whole lot of other things. But we also have our online community, and that is community.chnetwork.org. It's a whole closed social network um, just run by us, full of people who are, you know, again, trying to, you know, figure figure our lives out together and and learn how to glow closer to Christ and perhaps even his church. Uh, And then finally, if you're one of those pastors, um, who wants to sit down with other pastors who are in this situation or who have been through this situation, please, please, please consider 
um, checking out chnetwork.org slash retreats. And if you are a pastor, we have scholarships to basically cover your whole trip. Um, and uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. So Unless you're that's chnetwork.org slash retreats. Yeah, I don't know if we got international flights covered yet, but we do have some scholarships <laughs> um, for people in that situation. In the meantime, Ken Hensley, thank okay. you for sharing more of your story. Part two of 75. No, I guess we're, this is part, you know, three or four. Of part whatever. 20. You are welcome. But uh, yeah, thanks so much, Ken. Until next week, have a good one. Okay, you too. Okay.